Hey, y'all, I'm Sho. I'm Raina. And we just wanted to thank you for listening to the Count Off Podcast. What you're about to hear is the second hour of our usual two-hour broadcast. Now, this second part was designed as a podcast in mind. So when we're talking about second hours and all that, and you're wondering what happened, that's what's going on. Thanks again, and enjoy. Aloha, I'm Raina. Aloha, I'm Sho. And this week, the count-off is on a spring break of the mind. Hey, everyone. So, day two, quote-unquote, at the beach with nothing but spring break on the mind. This episode, we are taking it easy and trying to find some peace of mind during the period that would be around spring break for many schools. But many of them have been cut but many of them have been cut out of the academic calendar because of the ongoing pandemic. So this week we're playing Callie Cry, Laura Stevenson, and Annika Pyle. Our whole episode this week is an amazing interview with Dr. Reba Wisner to discuss the first woman to have her composition of music published, Madalena Kasulana. Yeah, we hope you stick with us for this relaxed, laid-back hour of the count-off. Oh, and hey, I'm Sho, and that's Reina. Hi! So to get started on our relaxed episode, we had recorded this interview many weeks ago and are just getting around to presenting it. We did this interview in honor of Women's History Month, and we are so proud of it, not just for how confident we felt during the interview, but for Dr. Reba Wisner, who was such a great guest. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Count Off, full interview episode with Dr. Reba Wisner, and we'll be back in a bit to play some songs. So we invited you on the show to have a conversation with us, but we also gave you a challenge through our email correspondence. And that challenge was to tell us about someone that we had never heard of before. And not only did you accept the challenge, you succeeded with this challenge. You provided us with a very interesting person, Madalena Casolana. Now, before we get into who Madalena Casolana is, I would like for you to set the scene for us. When are we in history and what is Madalena Casolana's world like? So right now we are in the Italian Renaissance in music. So we're in the 16th century and specifically we are in 16th century Italy. We're not entirely sure where Madalena Casolana was from in Italy. Um, we think she was probably from Vincenza, but we're not entirely sure. Um, but we are in a place where the arts, especially music, is, are really flourishing. And what makes her stand out so much is that most of the people who are writing music and performing music in um, Italy, where she is at the time, are men. What should we know or what would you like for us to know about Madalena Casulana? One of the things I find really cool about her um, is really her claim to fame. And her claim to fame was that she was the first woman to have her music published in her lifetime, but even really at any point. Um, so she was known for being a lutenist and a singer. And at this point, one of the things that really made it difficult for women to be composers, to be performers, was that they were women. So it was really a patriarchal society where if a woman wanted to do something 
study music um, or perform, she would often have to have support of her father or if her father was no longer around her brother um, and support both um, permission and financial support. Uh, and she is really the first woman to break away from that. And we know very little about her. We know that aside from being the very first woman to have her music published, um, she was pretty famous in her own time. We have people who are writing poems about her, uh, people who are writing pieces about her and dedicated to her. We know that she spent a lot of her time when she wasn't performing or writing music, teaching music, uh, which is another thing that was very, very unusual for a 16th century woman to be doing. What's really remarkable about her is that if you look at any music history textbook, she is the first woman who is discussed at length to write secular music. If we think about sacred music, we think in textbooks about Hildegard von Bingen. Uh, but in textbooks and in music history courses, she's the first woman that really is given a bit of attention. She's also the very first woman who had actually came out and said, I am a composer, I am a musician. She was the first one to actually admit and feel that she was a musician as her vocation, uh, which was very, very unusual. But one of the things that is pretty typical of her and, and of people, male or female, um, is when artistic works are being written in this point, uh, we have dedications. Um, whoever is writing music or poems or whatever, is they're typically dedicating it to somebody and somebody important. And Madalena Kazulana does this, and she does this with her first book of madrigals, and madrigals are secular songs. Um, and she dedicates it to Lady Donna Isabella de Medici Orsino, who was a duchess. Um, and typically in these dedications, the person who's writing them is talking about their faults and their failures. But specifically, she attributes hers to being a woman. In fact, that what she actually writes in this uh, dedication is, I truly know, most illustrious and excellent lady, that these first fruits of mine, because of their weakness, will not be able to produce the effect I desire. Namely, beyond giving your excellency some testimony of my devotion, to expose to the world, insofar as it is given to me to do so in the profession of music, the vain error of men who esteem themselves such masters of high intellectual gifts that they think women cannot share them too. In spite of their weakness, then, I have not refrained from publishing them, in the hope that the shining name of your excellency, to whom I dedicate them, will light them so brightly that they may inflame another higher intellect than mine, inciting it to demonstrate clearly in practice what I have only been able to envision in my mind. Therefore, Your Excellency, welcome my candid attempt, and if from such unripe fruit I cannot gain the praise that rewards only virtuous efforts, at least grace me with the prize of your goodwill, so that I will be reputed most fortunate, if not most skilled. I kiss Your Excellency's hand. And that's the dedication. Um, and she specifically calls out 
men who think themselves superior as composers that women are unable to do so. And she's really doing something that most women in 16th century would not dare to do, and that is call out the patriarchy. Why do you believe we know so little about Madalena Casulana? Well, one of the interesting things about um, her biography is that we, we know things on both ends of her life. We lose 12 years. Um, and unsurprisingly, somewhere between 1570 and 1582, which is the missing 12 years of her life, she got married. And when she got married, she dropped off the face of the earth, essentially. And we know that she got married um, because her name in dedications, for instance, there was a, a dedication that was made to her by a composer of um, Three Voice Madrigals, where he dedicates it to Madalena Casulana di Mezzari. Um, and Mezzari was the last name of the person that she married. And when she published again in 1586, she actually published under Madalena Mazzari, Detta Casulana Vicenta, which is Madalena Mazzari, who was Casulana from uh, Vicenza, which is one of the reasons why we think that she's tied to Vicenza. This is something that's happened in, in music history pretty frequently. Um, for instance, uh, one of the, I, I would say the, the best rock and roll R&B singers in the 50s was Ruth Brown. Um, and if you don't know Ruth Brown, you should definitely know Ruth Brown. She was an African-American musician singer and she was very, very popular. And then she got married. And then when she got married, her career stopped. And only after a while was she able to go back to performing. But at that point, her fame had kind of faded. And I think in many ways, the same thing happened with Madalena Casulana. She got married and in that time, she stopped composing and she stopped singing and she stopped playing elite and she stopped teaching. And so she became an everyday citizen and there was nothing really to differentiate her from any other woman that she was living around at the time. Um, and that is probably why we know so little about her. I'm curious to ask if that was an experience for women that was common at the time. I mean, you said that she was popular, that she was you know, famous for her time. And it seems so strange that, you know, someone who makes such an impact kind of falls off, you know, the face of history like that. Is that something that we commonly see you know, during this time frame, you know, maybe especially for female musicians? It is. Um, and one of one of the things, too, that's really important to know about her is that she started her career as a singer and lutenist when she was relatively young. Um, in Italy, in the Renaissance and even in the Baroque in the 17th century, there was a stigma if you were a woman who was a performer. Um, if you got up on the stage and you performed in any capacity, whether that's singing or playing an instrument or um, even in theater, uh, people would ascribe meaning to that, that you were a woman of loose morals. And because she did this when she was relatively young, she was able to escape that stigma because nobody really thought about um, 
a girl who was maybe about oh 10 or 12 years old being of loose morals so it was accepted at that point um and she was considered really a remarkable performer but as she got older and she could easily have this meaning ascribed to her performance that's when she started writing music and that's when she started teaching music um and not so much performing it so she was almost kind of like a child wonder in some ways because she was the girl that went around singing and, and performing and playing the lute um, but as soon as she was old enough that anyone can uh, get a, a ascribe some meaning to that uh, that's when she no longer performed and then everything was uh, all of her fame was given to her by her teaching and then her writing music and publishing music um, which of course at this point only certain people were able to afford publications so it was mainly the people who were of means that were able to buy her books of madrigals uh, and perform them on their own for fun. We're going to take a quick break from the interview and play a song. Coming up, we have Deja Vu by Callie Cry.
And you were just listening to Deja Vu by Callie Cry. And we are here today discussing Madalena Casulana with Dr. Reba Wisner. And we were just talking about how Madalena Casulana was the first woman to have her compositions published and how she was so popular at the time, something novel to that time period, especially for women. So I'd like to go back a little bit um, to kind of go to her fame. Um, you know, you said that she was a teacher, she was well known as a teacher, and that she really started to find her fame at a very young age. I mean, in fact, she had published most of her work through her 20s, I believe. And that's an incredible feat, kind of all in itself. And so um, do you think you could maybe describe like how popular was she? I mean, you know, because we hear about artists like Van Gogh, they were not necessarily popular until um, after their deaths, you know, but it seems as if Madalena Casulana was popular during her lifetime. So, you know, could you speak to that a little bit? How popular was she during her time? She was actually pretty popular um, and she was in demand um, in, in many ways. So we know that in 1568, she wrote a set of pieces um, for a royal wedding in Munich. And the Duke actually paid for her to go and come and have this music performed in Munich. So even outside of Italy, she was well known at a time where it was not as easy to get a reputation that people would know you outside of your, your home country, let alone your home city. So that was pretty remarkable. And people did ask her to write music for them. And people who did um, know about her music um, and people who were open-minded actually paid for their children, um, some of which were men, to study with her. And the reason I say open-minded is because this was a point where, um, as you heard from her dedication, that men often felt that women didn't have the capacity to write good music, let alone write music at all. To not only put your son or even daughter in the hands of this woman, but pay her to teach your child what they need to know skillfully as a musician, was just something that was really, really unusual. Uh, and I think in some ways, having her around in Italy at the time uh, and being someone who says, I am a musician, I am a composer, this is how I make my money. And taking that one step further and having her pieces published uh, was really a, a step for a very kind of liberal mind that you often didn't find in 16th century Italy. Is Do you think that mindset is something that is a result of kind of that Renaissance style thinking? Or am I kind of thinking backwards? Is it because of her that people were almost forced to start thinking like, man, this woman's really got it. And we got to start showing respect where respect is due. I think in many ways, it could be both of those. But what's also pretty remarkable is that if you were to look at a list of other composers who were living right around the same time as her, they're not as famous. And they're names that the average person probably wouldn't even recognize. Even some historians wouldn't recognize it. So my, um, I have two specialties. My, my two specialties are television music, but also early music. And I am an avid early music performer and I work on 17th century, but I also do a lot of uh, research and things like that in the 16th century. Um, and looking at the names of the composers who were living around the same time, there's maybe two or three 
that I recognize. So that in itself is interesting that there are other women who are writing music around the same time that she was alive, but they weren't publishing it. And they were not, they were mainly known in some ways as performers rather than composers. And I think part of this has to do with the fact that it was given the stigma of performance, it was much more accepted for a woman to be sitting in her home and writing music than it is to be on a stage and singing and playing. So I was curious um, if you could speak a little bit more on the kind of music that she wrote and performed, because um, you said she was an avid lutenist as well as a singer. And so um, I know that obviously music styles have changed over the centuries, um, but what specifically, what was about her music that kind of made it significant or was there anything particular about her music that really stuck out? Well, one of the things that's really important to know about um, Kasulana is we don't know how she was trained. And that's really important because we don't know if she was self-taught or if she actually was taught by someone. Um, if she was self-taught, you certainly would never know it by her music. Um, in the 16th century, there are very specific rules to how music needs to be written. Um, anything, any sound that's sort of, um, that's dissonant, that might be described as say, crunchy has to be handled in a very specific way and notes and, and uh, harmonies have to move in specific ways and she is doing that and she's following those rules but she's also experimenting in a way that was just starting to become um, important right after she lived um we have this notion of what's known as the second practice the second practice is um, a breaking away from renaissance rules and allowing for more daring harmonies more um, daring what we call dissonances chromaticisms alterations of notes so that they are um less pleasant to your ear but she's doing that before it becomes readily accepted. And she's also experimenting with contrasts of sound. Um, so playing around with highs and lows in a way that was pretty skillful at that point. But the downside to all this is as adventurous as she was and the way she was handling harmony and dissonance, which is the bigger picture, um, the smaller picture, which is how she handled individual melodies and how she wrote for individual voices and individual parts does show some weakness and some need of improvement. But if you, if you don't look at the nitty gritty and you don't look at the individual parts and you look at how things are constructed, um, it's really remarkable that she may have been self-taught. Um, the reason why I say that it's, it's if you look at the, the way the melodies and the voices are, and the parts are constructed, it still is in many ways um, considered best practice for you to not write very uh, leapy melodies, that you're not jumping from high notes to low notes and that sort of thing, that you're really going stepwise um, and you're being uh, singing relatively adjacent notes. And there are points where she just doesn't do that and she does kind of leapy stuff. So if you look at the microscopic level and the, the micro level, you'll see that there are uh, there's a need for improvement. But if you look at the macro level of what actually 
comes out on the page and how it sounds, it's quite remarkable um, that she was able to, um, if she did teach herself, be able to teach herself on her own. I have two questions to follow up. Um, I'm very curious about the self-talk because in our research, they I guess it didn't go so in depth as far as what her uh, teaching was, as far as where her music skill came from. And I had just read very cursory that kind of during this era, we started for the first time seeing an investment in the education for women. And so I kind of thought that she had kind of come through that first era of uh, mu musicians or first educated women that had been, you know, invested in during that time period. So um, you're saying that she's possibly self-taught. I mean, how, how, how does she go about, I mean, obviously this is a very weird question to ask, but how does she go about learning this kind of stuff? I mean, you know, it, it's not like as if music is super easy to pick up. So um, if she was not self-taught, we don't know the name of her teacher. And the reason that I speculate that she may have been self-taught was because of some of these errors. But if you ever listen to Renaissance music, the, the general thing that a lot of people say, and, and this is not here for my students all the time, and this is not knocking my students in any way, but the, the general consensus over my years of teaching is that it all sounds the same. <laughs> and you're not necessarily wrong. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because a lot of what composition teaching was in the 16th and 17th century was copying other people's works mm. so that you would learn um, what is appropriate and stylistically okay and harmonically and, and melodically okay. And so inevitably, if you copy enough composers' works, especially composers either from the same country, the same city, or even the same composers' works, you're inadvertently going to internalize that style. Right. Um, and you're going to to spit out stuff that sounds just like it. So that's why I say when, when people say that Renaissance music all sounds the same, in many ways, they're not wrong because they learn by copying. And so it's conceivable um, because we don't know a lot about her uh, early life that she may have been able to get a hold of some of these printed pieces and teach herself by copying. So then I guess the second question is, is that you said that a lot of what she's written is very traditional in a sense. There's a lot of through lines you can see where it's connected to the music that was being produced at that time. But you also said that she experimented with stuff. She was kind of on the cutting edge of what you called the second practice. And so why do you think she was able to do that? I mean, do you think it was because of the position that she held? Like she was such an outsider at the time that she's like, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I want with music because you know, my whole life has been going against the grain. I mean, how do you explain her experimentation in a time where it seems as if it was really conserv you know, conservative types of music were being produced? I think her popularity actually lent to that. Um, if you love a artist, um, whatever you define artist as, whether that's a musician or a visual artist or a playwright, eventually get a following. And that following a lot of times will kind of overlook um, anything that may be unusual for the time. Like you can do it, you can do no wrong, as they say. And so I think that she was using that to her advantage, um, that she already was breaking out of the mold by having her music published and by singing and performing as a young girl, that people already thought that she was great and she was a trailblazer. And so she was able to 
uh, get away with it. But the other thing also I think may have contributed it to it as well is going back to the notion of the dedication where men thought that women were unable to write music well. And so it was overlooked because they said, oh, it, it's just the, the a failing of her sex, as they often said uh, about women. It, it's just a, a natural failing of, of women's nature and we can't do anything about it. And so I think that was another reason too. Um, but in the end, it sounded good. So you can go and look at a piece of music and you can examine it under a microscope and, and see what's there. But if it sounds good and people like it, I think that's really what matters in the end. So we talked about how loved Casalana was. Did she have any critics? Um, we don't know for sure. I personally speculate that she probably did. The reason I bring up the second practice was because of another composer named Claudia Monteverdi, who did very similar things that she did, um, adding in daring harmonies and, and lots of other things that were not accepted uh, harmonic practice. And he released a madrigal called Cruda Amarilli that really had a, a man named Giovanni Artusi upset by this. And Artusi was trained in the first practice. He was trained in the very traditional, straight-laced, um, refined, restrained musical style. And then you get somebody like Monteverdi, who's throwing in these crunchy notes that don't go essentially all over the place. And it was kind of like an OK Boomer moment where Monteverdi and his brother basically shot back and said, you are the old school, we are the new school, and you kind of have to get used to it. Uh, and so the, I bring that up because Casulana in many ways is doing the same exact thing that Monteverdi is doing with those daring harmonies and the dissonances and the chromaticisms and the crunchy stuff. Um, and Monteverdi was also a well-known composer and he was a man. And he was criticized. So I would only imagine that Kasulana probably faced the same criticism as he did as a woman. We're going to play another song, take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from Dr. Reba Wisner and Madalena Kasulana. Coming up, we have Landslide, The Dig by Laura Stevenson. Rush, 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 when Thank you. 
back and we've been talking with Dr. Reba Wisner from the Schwab School of Music and we are talking about an amazing woman from history, Madalena Kasulana. We were just discussing how she had probably faced criticism both as a composer within the second practice and probably because she was a woman. So we spoke a little bit about her relationship with uh, Isabella de Medici and um, that was an incredibly influential relationship. I mean, like you said, she dedicated her work to her as well. Um, obviously, that was a huge way that she was able to support herself as a musician. But, you know, how in an everyday life, I mean, musicians during this time, you know, they weren't like a Justin Bieber who were touring and getting, you know, record deal advances and stuff like that. So how was she able to support herself during this time? Um, mainly through uh, commissions. So, for instance, um, the pieces that she was uh, writing for uh, Munich, where she was paid to go, um, but mainly teaching. Um, so it was, especially for women, uh, it was acceptable for a woman to be a teacher. So um, she would take composition students. Um, and then probably one of the reasons why she faded out in those 12 years uh, of her life is that her husband was most likely supporting her. Um, and then either he felt that she no longer needed to write music and teach in order to support herself, or he um, didn't support the notion of her writing music and performing and teaching at all. So we're not entirely sure, but I'm thinking that that's probably um, the, the reason why she faded out in those 12 years is because she had monetary support from her husband. One thing that I thought was interesting was that um, you said that she kind of fell off the face of history when, once she was married. She, during her time as a musician, she was a completely single and independent woman. Is that correct? Correct. And, and that was completely unnormal at the time. Absolutely. So then how, so then how is her lifestyle significant, you know, like compared to other women at this time? Um, it was very rare for a woman who was not a courtesan to be completely independent. Even women who were courtesans usually had what they called protectors, uh, which were exactly what they sounded like. They were there to protect you from men and their wandering hands and things like that, because these women had reputations. But she was somebody who was completely independent and supported herself. She was not married for a while. And that was something that was really unusual. Um, she was very uh, strong-willed um, and she did not let patriarchal society and accepted gender norms tell her what she could and she couldn't do. Of course, she wound up eventually getting married and, and succumbing to those patriarchal gender norms. Um, but for a while, she was really almost considered a spinster. How do you think Madalena Casolana changed the world of music? What do you believe is her legacy? I think that she, um, she paved the way for other women, especially in her time, to understand that it's okay to be composers and it's okay to be musicians. Um, and if you if you look at um, the, the whole list of women from the time she lived even to now, we have so many more names of women whose pieces were composed and, and published. And we know the names of some of these women. And some of these women 
were aristocrats or they were the children of prominent people in society whose parents believed that it was okay for a woman to compose and perform. Um, but she really was the first one, I think, um, that made it publicly okay that a woman was doing this. And this was a woman in a man's world. And she was basically telling people that this is no longer a man's world. And we need to address this notion that women can't do these things simply because they are women. And I think that was really, really significant because once you get into the 17th century, we start to get names. Um, if you look at music history textbooks, some of these names are, of women are treated pretty significantly. Um, and their pieces appear in anthologies and, and these pieces are, are being performed uh, pretty widely in early music circles. Um, but it, it was Madalena Casulana who really was the one who came out and said, this is okay. You're not gonna die if you're a performer. You're not gonna die if you're a, a composer. Um, it, this, nothing's gonna hurt you. It's not a bad thing. And let's just get more women out there. So to pick up on that, is there anyone you would say is similar to a Madalena Casulana as a front runner or someone that's breaking the mold right now? You know, I mean, honestly, the first person that comes to mind is Lizzo because yes. she is constantly being criticized for a variety of reasons. And she just doesn't get up on the stage and sing. She plays the flute, which is unusual for a pop singer to be doing. Um, and she doesn't care what the naysayers say. She does her thing. And she is there and says, it's okay to be you. And it's okay to make the music you want to make. Um, and I, so I would say that Lizzo is probably the closest. What was preventing women from publishing their works before Madalena Casolana came along? Two things, patriarchy, and also um, the ability to persuade a publisher to actually take on your music and publish it. Um, this is something that the problem was not solved after she came along. Um, it was far from it. If you even look forward to the 19th century, we have instances of music by women composers who are being published under the names of their brothers, their husbands, because publishers were very reluctant to publish women's music for the same kind of stigma that there was still this notion that women couldn't be skilled composers. But if you take that same piece and you publish it under a man's name, then suddenly they're willing to, to take it on and to sell it. And, and so in many ways, there was a lot of bias happening in publishing circles. So that also was something that didn't really get solved for a while. And so the composers whose names that we have who are women before the 19th century, most of them were lucky enough to have their music taken on by a publisher. But I can imagine that there were probably many women who were not as lucky and who, because of that, we don't know their names. So we've talked about the last four centuries of time and progress seems to be slow but steady. How do you feel that we are doing now in the realm of music? I think we have a long way to go. I say this for a variety of reasons, but the one reason that comes to my mind, um, happens to come to my mind right around this time every year. And that is when the Rock Hall has their nominees 
for induction into the Rock Hall of Fame released. And that's because there is a very, very small number of women who have been inducted into the Rock Hall. We have a, a few who were nominated, but even fewer who actually made it into the inductees. And I think for 2021, to have so few women inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame is just obscene. Um, and so I think that in many ways, we are still a patriarchal society and we are still gravitating toward music of men um, being considered more serious than music of women. You know, if you if you look, you know, compare, say, The Weeknd to Lizzo, um, I can imagine how those conversations might go. Lizzo might be described as, as frivolous or um, eccentric or anything like that where we wouldn't use that same kind of, of language and those same adjectives for somebody like The Weeknd. So I think that we do have a very long way to go um, in terms of, of women's equality and and how they are perceived in music. And we do have some, some trailblazers like say Taylor Swift um, who are kind of like, I don't care what you think. But at the same time, in that moment of the, I don't care what you think, you still get a lot of naysayers who are criticizing her and, and saying she's whiny and, and all of this other stuff. Again, language that is usually not reserved for men. We're going to take our final break and play one last song. Coming up, we have Haiku for Everything You Loved and Miss by Annika Pyle.
Town Off full interview episode, we have been discussing Madalena Kasulana at length with Dr. Reba Wisner, and we just discussed the modern equivalent of Kasulana today, but we also spoke about one of the controversies in music from this year. I want to do a little sidebar because you've opened up a great opportunity for a conversation Reina, have had, Reina and I have had in the last couple of weeks, but um, are you aware of the Phoebe Bridgers kind of upset that happened when she performed live at SNL? I'm not. So Phoebe Bridgers did her SNL debut. Um, and of course, Phoebe Bridgers is a four-time Grammy nominated for her newest album. She's absolutely killing it. A fantastic and incredible musician and like great person. And so she performed. She did her SNL debut and it was a huge deal. And her very final song, I think it's This is the End. And mm-hmm. it's an incredibly impactful song. And it's like the last song on her album. And she like destroys her guitar on stage. She like beats it against an amp and there's sparks flying everywhere. And people on Twitter mainly... We call them rock dads, but (laughs) a lot of them were like, what is she doing? She's so extra. And we were really upset at the notion because there's a history of, you know, expressing yourself physically through music. You know, do you think you could, I don't know if you're, you know, ready to speak on this since you don't quite know the subject matter, but like, why do you think this persists? This like gatekeeping of like musicality, because you know, women rule the music industry today. You know, it's the largest proportion of, you know, buyers of music and the largest, you know, the biggest performers tend to be women as well. So why does this stick around? Why does this idea still persist? It's actually interesting that you asked that. Um, am I allowed to use profanity here? You can use any profanity. We will beep you out. It's perfectly fine. Okay. Um, because a, uh, so a, a colleague of mine, Every semester teaches, not at CSU, but in another university, teaches a history of rock class. And of course, every semester, you know, the typical course evaluations of teaching. And she got them back one semester. And all of her class, first of all, was filled, as far as I was able to ascertain from her, all filled with males. Mm. Um, And so she is, she is the instructor. And one of the comments she got back was chicks don't know about rock huh and that's something she still talks about where it's there is this gatekeeping that rock should be something um that is performed by men and if you do things like phoebe bridges where you are breaking your guitar on stage you are doing things that are unladylike yeah even if you are channeling people like Jimi hendrix who also destroyed his guitar on stage right um, so we still have this notion of what is ladylike and what isn't and i think that the demographic of the quote-unquote rock dads that I'm thinking of um, are relatively like men in their 40s or so. They're still from this time where um, the majority of rock singers and metal singers were all men. And now it's hard to accept that there are women who are doing this stuff just as well, if not better, and carrying on those physical traditions that men had and that men did. I think that's um, so interesting. I mean, I obviously I'm a male and I'm an Asian male. And so like for the most part, for demographic purposes, I'm kind of like the closest to a white person, um, a white male. And so like, I find it really interesting. I try and be incredibly like open and empathetic to these kinds of situations. And I find myself being like 
I'm not defending men by any means, but like I'm always on that side to kind of try and do that perspective taking to be like, what is it in our in our how we're raised or in our DNA that makes us think these particular things? Because um, I remember growing up in a music scene that was very male centric and like there was a lot of emphasis on male um, dominated music. But like like we're talking about Dolly Parton and, you know, we've done a lot of cursory research on her and she's like probably one of the most probably one of the more influential musicians out there. And I just, it's so interesting that female musicians have so much power and, and like influence within the music industry. And somehow, you know, it's like your Bruce Springsteen that kind of keeps getting talked about, but not like a Dolly Parton who's credited with 5,000 different songs, you know, 42 albums on the top 100. I mean, you know, where do you think this, is it because like media itself is also still kind of concerned with promoting the patriarchy? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of my dad's favorite things to say um, regards Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. Um, and he's always saying, I don't know how that man became famous. He's not very good looking. He can't really dance and he sure as heck can't sing. So how did he become so famous? Yeah. And it's a good question when you have so many people who are good looking, who can dance and who can sing. And you, you don't really hear people criticizing in the media or in general on social media even, the fact that someone like Mick Jagger can't sing. But then you do get people, um, I have a dear, dear friend who, um, when they were doing the live musicals on, I think it was what, NBC, and they had Carrie Underwood yeah. Um, yeah. singing, um, she called her Carrie Underpitch because she couldn't carry a tune. But you wouldn't call Mick Jagger like something like that. I mean, right. forgetting his name, but again, this criticism, and this is a woman criticizing a woman. Um, you So this, this notion that women have to sound a certain way is, I think, very pervasive still in the media. We have this notion of great performers. Um, and if you are a woman who's, a, a, who's relatively new, um, as in like not from the past, like from 50 years forward, <laughs> um, you're relatively new. There's still that, that hard ability to kind of transcend that notion. So we've talked about Madalena Casulana more specifically, but you kind of likened her to Lizzo and a little bit of Taylor Swift. So maybe kind of include all of these personalities, all of these ideas, all of these people how do we celebrate this? How, how do we, you know, here at the Count Off, how do we as listeners, how do we embody and celebrate these musicians, these like progressive people every single day? One of the biggest things that I, I advocate for is buying their music. For somebody like Madalena Casulana, it, the, the music performed, the recordings, the money for that goes to the performers, who in many ways are women musicians. But even people like Lizzo, even people like Taylor Swift, buy their music. Don't just listen to it on Spotify or any streaming service because the financial aspect of music now is just as important, if not more important, as it was in Madalena Casulana's time. And especially now with the pandemic where these musicians who ordinarily might be touring are no longer touring. So financially, I would say buying the music, buying an album, buying uh, individual songs, um, 
it really, really is the first step in doing that. And then also just listening to, to their music and, and thinking about where they fall in the spectrum and, and how they as women came out of this tradition where it was not accepted for them to do this sort of thing. And now look, we have all of these women who are going and performing and writing their own music and playing their own music. And I think that's really something that we need to think more about that we often overlook. So uh, before we get to our fun music questions, we just want to ask, is there anything else that we should have asked you or that we didn't talk about today? No, I think we pretty much covered everything about her. And sadly, I just wish we knew more about her life and everything. And those missing 12 years. Yeah, I really do. I mean, it's an absolutely incredible story that like, I'm like sitting there and I'm like, why, why do we not have like eight different remakes of this movie with like so many different strong female leads? Like this would be such a fun story, like set piece to make. It's just amazing that the story isn't told in so many different ways already. Absolutely. Okay. So we are going to do our fun music questions. I will start off with your, if you were stranded on a desert island, what three albums would you bring with you? And just to start off, compilations and greatest hit albums do count because it is your desert island. So you get to pick whatever music you want to listen to. So I am a child-ish of the 90s. And so I love 90s music. And so my desert island albums, I would say, would be R.E.M.'s Out of Time, um, Nirvana's Nevermind, and Pearl Jam's Ten. Out of those three albums, which one would you be? Which, which one would you consider to be your most favorite, and why? Ooh, um, you know, I, I'm torn between Nevermind and Out of Time, um, but I think I might go with Out of Time, and I think because that particular album is pretty diverse, and because I'm a historian, I, I love kind of. Um, historical tidbits and out of time is the album that had losing my religion on it and losing my religion was a song that was really one of the first if not the first songs um, to be released on mainstream radio that uses the mandolin as a lead instrument rather than the guitar that is so cool i did not know that so before we get out of here what would you like to plug so if you're interested in um mid-century television and music um, in November 2020. Uh, my third book recently came out um, called Music and the Atomic Bomb on American Television 1950 to 1969. Um, and I talk about everything there from um, episodes of Lassie and Felix the Cat to um, kind of uh, popular shows at the time like Medic and Twilight Zone. So if you're interested in how the atomic bomb was sonically represented on TV during the 50s and 60s, check out my book. Awesome. Thank you so much for this. We, we really, 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 this was really fantastic. You're an incredible interview. I just kind of hate to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was fun. You have an absolutely amazing evening and we will hear you in a little bit. Sounds good. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Dr. Reba Wisner for this interview, and we hope to have you on the show again. Thanks for listening. We hope you had some good stuff and heard some good music. 
we appreciate your time today and we hope you'll be back with us next Thursday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, we have a playlist that gets updated after the show airs. Check it out on Spotify by searching for The Count Off. You can also find more about us at Pack Media Network on Instagram. Check out our station, WCUG's Instagram at Cougar Radio WCUG to find out more about our student lineup. If you'd like to request a song, leave a message at 678-631-9043. Music courtesy of David Brenda Music and Jordan Seavers. Thanks to Quote Unquote Records and Katza. Take care of yourselves and take care of others. Be good and be safe. Be excellent to each other. Special thanks to the most excellent student staff of WCUG. Especially Matt and Lewis. As well as our faculty advisor. Dr. Bruce Getz and department chair Dr. Dana Gibson in helping us air this show. I'm Raina. Hey, and I'm Show. And this has been The Count Off. Take it easy, y'all. Surf's up. Surf's up.